0: Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland, St. Louis, Missouri. On July 4th, 2022, we talked with Frank Charlton. A graduate student at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. He also did his bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Leeds. He studies the biochemical processes of Bunya virus entry. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um,
1: so my name is Frank. I'm a final year PhD student at the University of Leeds. So my area of interest is virology. So my project looks at how envelope viruses hijack the endocytic network to enter cells and the biochemical triggers that actually drive those processes.
0: Um, And then um, can you tell us how you first uh, became interested in science and then virology?
1: Yeah, um, I think in sort of comprehensive school or or high school, as you guys say, I was always kind of, I always gravitated towards science. They were the, the subjects For all all of the sciences of physics, chemistry, biology, I sort of looked forward to those the most and just found that I was good at them and enjoyed them. So the two, both enjoying it and, you know, being good at it, kind of went hand in hand. And at every juncture of choosing what to pursue at the next level of education, I just chose something I enjoyed and that led me through sort of funneling through science and moving towards biology in general. And then eventually at the university level level, just choosing just choosing modules that involve viruses really, because that's what I found most interesting and most enjoyable. So there was never a strategy or a goal per se. I've always just chosen what I enjoyed at every at every sort of juncture.
0: Okay. And then can you tell us how you um Sort of got into or chose your PhD lab. How does that work in the UK?
1: Um, it's quite a it's quite a convoluted process. Um, there's so many different avenues in, although at the time it feels like there's none because it's so competitive. So um, for me, it was a, a competition funded project. So I was one of the. Throughout the year, there's a sort of cycle of there's every quarter, I'd say there's sort of a a load of projects are released. And I was quite late. I was, I'd been applying from September of one year all the way through to April of the next year and going through interviews, uh, recruitment days, all of that, and kept sort of falling out the final hurdle. Then I got, I actually got wind of the, uh, there were three faculty funded uh, scholarships at the university I was doing my master's at. And it was competition funded, like I said. So basically everyone was sort of ranked based upon their CV and their suitability for a PhD in general. And then you have to, in the interview process, you actually represent the project that you've applied for. So the projects are almost pitted against each other. So you have to, defend a project you haven't started and also defend yourself so I kind of yeah I had to kind of go head to head with other people wanting to do other projects so I wasn't competing just to do my project I was just I was competing to do any projects or a project so it was quite it was quite a sort of difficult a difficult process but we got there in the end
0: And then um, can you tell us, I guess, what your lab's like, and then, um, you know, tell us more about sort of the research that you're doing, some of the big picture questions, and then maybe some of the techniques that you use to actually do that research.
1: Yeah, of course. So uh, my lab is, there are, it's sort of medium-sized. We have three postdocs and a handful of PhD students, but we share this huge lab space with around 10 other groups so there's probably maybe 100 researchers in our mega lab as we call it so as far as our big picture goes as it were our group does a lot of work on bunya viruses primarily so we're kind of tackling different aspects of the bunya virus life uh, life cycle between some people are doing Uh, assembly and egress others are doing the replication i focus on entry so we're kind of we have the same grounding in terms of your normal biochemical techniques a lot of immunofluorescence western block beaters things like that but we also have we're also really fortunate that we have um, some really nice cryo em facilities on site so we're also kind of migrating or merging with um, PIs who want to talk, answer the same questions using EM. So, we also get to use EM to look at how, for my example, my work looks at virus entry and the biochemical triggering of virus spikes, which historically we've always proved biochemically, but now with the advent of EM and happening on site, we can actually visualize those architectural changes. And that really adds a whole new dimension to our work, really. So we're well, becoming more and more multidisciplinary in terms of bringing in more structural biology. Uh, we collaborate with the maths department as well to look at um, the more statistical side of how bunyaviruses work. So it's really a bit of a it's a bit of a melting pot, really, of disciplines that all marry together.
0: Cool, cool. And can you tell us, I guess, taking a step back, um, can you tell us a little bit about bunya viruses?
1: Yeah, so bunya viruses are are a huge collection of viruses. So there's well over 500 named isolates in the order, as we call it, in the order of bunya viruses. So they're very diverse. Some infect mammals, others infect plants, others infect insects. So there's this huge range of viruses within this collection, but some of them are known to be quite dangerous towards humans and are actually considered emerging infections. So they're they're considered to be a threat in terms of spillover into humans and from, be that from insects in endemic areas, such as with climate change driving um, the vectors of these diseases further north. So they are really sort of diverse, but also, th- there are also a group of viruses that we should really be keeping a close eye on. And we are trying to, we're trying to preemptively understand some of these viruses be- before they become a much greater threat.
0: Cool, and are they um, single-stranded RNA viruses? What are they?
1: Yeah, so they're single-stranded negative sense RNA viruses. And the, uh, the RNA is actually packaged as three segments. And the complication arrives when it's thought that the three segments, if a similar Bunyavirus infects the same cell as another, the segments can actually recombine in the offspring virus. And you can actually get offspring virus with novel traits. And this has already been seen in nature and this is something that we think could drive emergence in the future. So we're really keeping an eye on that, but also the negative, the fact that it's also an RNA gene makes it much more error prone in terms of replication. So you get much, you get accelerated genetic drift and just greater mutation rates as well.
0: Right. Right. And when you were talking about so you're studying sort of the viral entry what is known about bunyavirus entry just in general like are receptors known for some b- bunyaviruses are they very specific to the virus how does that work
1: Yeah so it's thought the the entry profile of a lot of these viruses is somewhat undefined because there's just so many but for for what we call model bunia viruses, so ones that we can study safely um It's thought thought that we have a fairly good idea of the entry pathways and the receptors for these viruses. So um, some viruses are very promiscuous and can use a lot of different receptors and others are very sort of specific. And beyond that, we're still sort of really trying to understand the, the minutiae of how each sort of family of bunya viruses actually traffics through cells because once upon a time, as recently as five years ago, bunya viruses were just one family and everything was sort of lumped together, but we had so many different, different phenotypes. There were so many different ways that different bunya viruses did things. So with reclassification into an order, we ended up with suddenly a group of families, and then these families all have different um, different life cycles. So we've kind of, in spreading the viruses out uh, taxonomically, we're really kind of, not backwards, but we're really starting to see the stark differences between how different bunyaviruses viruses enter cells. I guess that's quite a long roundabout way of saying we're still not, we're still a long way off.
0: Right. Can you give us um, some examples of this? So how do some of the bunyaviruses enter the cells? What are the differences, say, between some of these families?
1: Yeah, so the prototypic uh, orthobunyavirus or peribunyavirus, as it's known now, the bunyamera virus. So it's known that that is internalized. Um, This is actually something I did during my master's project. So it was a clathrin-independent pathway, and it traffics towards late endosomes and requires a slightly acidic pH to escape. And that's driven by uh, pH and potassium-driven triggering of the spike, which is something our group has also published. Um, Hazara virus, which is mostly what I study now, which is in the family of the Nero viruses, that seems to enter via clathrin and is thought to escape from an early endosome, so it uses it needs a pH of around 7.3 to actually be triggered to escape from the endosome. So, which is almost neutral, versus the sort of acidic triggers for Bunyamwera virus. So, straight away, these even for two viruses that I've used in my own hands, they're sort of remarkably different in terms of the entry kinetics and how how fast they're internalized and also how fast they actually escape into the cell proper.
0: Right, right. Um, And are you going to be talking about some of this work at ASV this year?
1: I am, yes. Um, So like I said earlier, my sort of PhD project is largely focused on the biochemical cues for bunyavirus escape and nerovirus escape especially. So I'm going to be talking about what I've what I've gone at thus far, and that's regarding how we've noted uh, a potassium sensitivity in neuroviruses in terms of blockade of potassium channels in cells seems to inhibit the viral life cycle at an early stage. And then through pharmacological and genetic um disruption of potassium channels, we've shown we've possibly identified some channels that we believe are actually supportive of neurovirus entry and therefore could represent a decent drug target in terms of an anti-neurovirus therapy going forwards.
0: Cool. And um, information that you gain from your viral entry studies is that, is applying that to like drugs or therapeutics sort of the next step for your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So looking at the two the two things that sort of pharmacological means and virus entry have in common is that there's going to be a target per se, a druggable target. So if we look at the drugs that are the channels or the targets that are supportive of viral infection, we can kind of almost reverse engineer that back towards pharmacological inhibitors and look at it. We look at the inhibition profile of some known drugs and say, Oh, look, this drug targets this channel. Let's see, let's try that and see if that inhibits uh, viral replication. That's kind of what's informed our work. But previously, we've also, it also kind of started, if we flip that on its head, we first found this potassium dependence just by throwing potassium channel blocking drugs onto cells to see what happens. So, the drugs sort of informed the viral dependence we then identified the channels then went back to more specific drugs so the two kind of go hand in hand really and leads they lead to one another essentially
0: and uh i guess you're a little bit into your um, phd what are your plans for the future are you thinking of doing a postdoc or going into industry do you have any thoughts about what do you want to do next
1: so i really want to do a postdoc um I think the world's a very big place and I want to I want to go and find a lab where that has some new ideas, some new techniques, and just, I guess, just kind of grow as a scientist still. Um, I always had this idea as a master's student that the final year PhD students knew everything. And now now I'm a final PhD student, I, I realise I still have a long way to go and a lot to learn. So I just want to go, I want to do a postdoc in a lab where... I could pick up some new techniques and also add add my own flavor to the work that they've got going there. So that might take me to the US, that might take me elsewhere in Europe. Um, I have no idea. I'm just kind of, I'll probably stick to the same mantra that I've had in the past, just do something that is going to interest me and that I think I'll enjoy. And no doubt I'll land in a postdoc that's good for me.
0: Great, and um, do you have any ideas of sort of what additional skills or techniques or subject area that you're interested in, or is anything on the table?
1: I think almost anything's on the table really. I'm, I'm kind of interested in the vector biology side of things. So some of my early master's work considered how bunyaviruses interact interacts with insect cells and how different that would be to the life cycle in mammalian cells. So I'd really kind of like to revisit some of that and look at how some of these viruses interact with, with insect cells and their vect- and vectors. Um, I'd also like to maybe try something slightly more pathogenic and of higher consequence. So using a prototypic virus has been great, but I'd like to really sort of get, get stuck into something where I can actually say, this is how this virus works rather than predicting it based upon a model. So on top of that, the techniques will just be, you know, I think EM is really hot at the minute and I really want to build upon what I've already done. And then just, there are so many other biochemical techniques that I haven't got the chance to do in terms of cell fusion assays, you know, really cool things like that. And SPR, just fret um, as well. So these really nice, these really nice asses that I can answer questions that I have, I think would all be really useful to learn and kind of help my development as a scientist.
0: Right, right. Um, and then can you sort of reflect a little bit what the last two and a half years has been like being a virologist during a pandemic? What's that been like for you?
1: Um, It was kind of, it was kind of crazy as it was for everyone. I think a lot of us maybe underestimated the carnage that would are see, really. We, you know, pre, pre-March 2020, we, was you know, there were rumours of a conference being cancelled and we thought, no, no way. Then, oh, uh, we need to go home for a couple of weeks then everything will be fine. And we kind of just worked to these small increments of time where we thought we'll be back at work soon we'll be back at work soon so those initial months kind of went by fairly fast because we always you know clung onto that hope of being able to get back into the lab but then you're also asking yourself as a biologist like can I be helping should I be helping like what can I what can I bring to the table really Um, would I you know would I actually be helping would I be getting in the way sort of where what's my sort of place in the world of virology right now um and then as in britain we really sort of ramped up the pcr testing capacity very quickly and with that they needed they needed virologists that were comfortable handling pathogens that were comfortable working in um like a biological safety conditions and being very careful and meticulous so the vast majority of people from my lab actually got seconded to a PCR lab, so we all moved into a hotel and just slept and went and prepared samples all day. We did that for a little while, so that kind of gave a lot of us some purpose that I think we'd really been looking for. Um, and then, of course, back to back to university or kind of unsure of how to navigate social distancing. You know, we our lab is really big on, sort of. You know, new students are taught by PhD students, and there's a lot of close shadowing during the early months. So I had, I had a new PhD student and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't show really how to do things from two meters away. It's really hard to demonstrate a lot of skills from two meters. So there were there were things that we never considered that we'd have to navigate like that. And, um, you know, following on from that, just sort of the scaling back of restrictions and easing back into what we call normality, we things got easier, but then you're also kind of keeping one eye on the news and this sort of divided opinion on virologists as well. You know, certainly friends of mine that don't understand what I do, are always asking like what's actually going on like what do you know and I say like I know as much as you do so there was there was that, that whole other side of things as well so yeah it was uh, it was crazy but it was crazy for everyone in their own way
0: yeah yeah all right well thanks for talking with us and we look forward to hearing about your research at ASB
1: yeah it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbeam.com